You're listening to TIP. I was super fortunate for the the early team, many of which are still with the company. Like they bring on additional great people. Those great people bring on additional great people. And so it really is the spreading network effects of the individuals that you bring on at the company, that the company is nothing more than the individuals at it working on a, a shared problem. On today's episode, I'm joined by M1 Finance founder and CEO, Brian Barnes. M1 Finance is a personal finance platform that offers the best of digital investing, borrowing, and banking. After starting just seven years ago in 2015, over half a million people use M1 and they manage over $6 billion. During this episode, Brian and I chat about what led him to starting M1 Finance and what sets them apart from industry titans like Vanguard and Fidelity how M1 Finance is providing features to retail investors that are traditionally only provided to the ultra-wealthy, how you can borrow against your investment account on M1, how cryptocurrencies play into their vision, how Brian envisions the fintech landscape evolving over time, Brian's biggest lessons in starting and scaling a company to 300 employees, and so much more. I'm personally a user of M1 and a big fan of their platform. Even if you're not interested in switching investment platforms, I can promise you this will be a very interesting conversation as we chat about the future of fintech as well as what it takes to start and grow a successful business. With that, I really hope you enjoy today's conversation as much as I did with Brian Barnes. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink, and today I'm joined by Brian Barnes. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You know, it's such an honor having you on the show. You're the CEO of M1 Finance. I personally use your platform, so it feels somewhat surreal to be chatting with you today. To get us kicked off, you know, I'm looking at the options for where people can invest. Obviously, companies like Vanguard and Fidelity come to mind and are very popular. You know, I used to be a Vanguard customer myself. When looking at these companies, these are just massive companies. Vanguard, for example, has $7.2 trillion in assets under management. Now, looking at your background, you graduated from Stanford in 2012, ended up starting M1 Finance in 2015. So I'm super curious, what led you to want to take on these titans in the investment industry? When you phrase it like that, it was uh, probably a, a silly move. You know, even if you look at those companies, those companies started at some point. And so Vanguard, Fidelity, Schwab all started in sort of like the 60s, 70s era. And they looked at the old incumbent institutions at the time, sort of the Morgan Stanley's, the Merrill Lynch, you know, the JP Morgans of the world and said, hey, we can offer a better product, better pricing and innovate on what's accessible and truthfully, you know, either deliver something that's equivalent at a better price or enhance the overall experience and deliver something that, you know, the old incumbents are not doing. I just think those firms compounded into the behemoths that they are, but you look at them and they're really based on, you know, the 1970s ideas and then technology built in the 90s, the early 2000s. And if you have a toolkit of the 2010s, the 2020s, you would just create a financial service firm very differently. You would build it on a fully digital infrastructure. Uh, You would enable the customer experience that you have that people have come to know with sort of every application that is outside of personal finance. And so it was one of the things that I thought the possibilities for money management could be drastically enhanced through a better customer experience 
It could allow for extreme personalization at scale. So every single person could do exactly with their money what they want, set up automated rules and the like. You could drive down the costs very significantly. And so M1 was free at the time. Schwab, Fidelity, Vanguard were charging 10 bucks per trade. And you know, re- really just create a financial service firm using the foundation that exists nowadays. And the ideal scenario is we compound into the behemoths and you know, sort of every era has a handful of financial service companies that do become the behemoths. And we think that planting the seed now gives us the ability to compound into something great over long periods of time. What really stuck out to me in kind of attracted me to your platform was the pies feature. Essentially, you can create your own little ETF of pies. Say you can throw in Apple, Google, and whatever companies you want, and then you can set your percentage allocations to those, and then you can just automate your investment process by creating your pies. What do you think are the biggest features you have that kind of attract those customers from other platforms? Yeah. So, you know, that's on the investing platform. If you look at the landscape, almost every other brokerage, which is how people buy stocks and ETFs, is built around trading. And we think that there's a huge difference between trading and investing. It all starts with the same action of you're buying a stock, but you're doing it for very different purposes. Trading, you're trying to apply the price movements in the short term. Investing, you're trying to buy ownership in a company in a sector over long periods of time and get appreciation due to the underlying asset appreciating in value. And so we take a little bit of a different perspective of, you know, there are trading platforms and there are investing platforms. If you look at a lot of people who use Fidelity, Schwab, Vanguard, they're actually investing, but they're using a trading platform to do it. And so every single action requires them to specify the order type, specify the share count, click a button, get through, and then they just get a list of transactions and a list of holdings. And really what they're trying to do is maintain an investment portfolio. M1 just takes it much more explicitly and says, just tell us what you want your investment portfolio to look like and do it on a percentage basis. So say I want 5% of my money in this investment, 10% of my money in that investment. I want 25% of my money in this collection of investments. And then that can become its own sort of you know, pie chart that you're allocating. And it's really sort of saying, this is what I want my portfolio allocation to be. I want my risk allotted in these percentages. I have as much customization as I feel comfortable having. But like you said, that's sort of a design your own ETF, design your own mutual fund where it's maintain this allocation for me. And it doesn't matter how much money I put into it. M1 takeover and just enact this custom plan that I put together. And so that, that's what we do. We have an intuitive way for people to construct the portfolio and then people allocate against it, much like they add money to a savings account. It doesn't matter if you add $5, $718, you know, $50,000, it all goes to work. And then we're doing a lot of creative things uh, in the background to direct the money towards where it could be best used in your custom portfolio to efficiently rebalance it. And so, you know, it, it really is trying to turn the notion of its head of trade to build your portfolio to build your portfolio and invest in that portfolio. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And I guess I'll also mention that, you know, you don't have to just include individual stocks in your pies like I mentioned the Apple and Google example. You can create your own ETF portfolio where you have a slice of S&P 500, you have a slice of tech, you have a slice of value and whatever really you want to add to your pie or your own personal ETF allocation. And I've heard you mention that in the way these incumbents serve their customers, they're offering the super ultra wealthy features that aren't really offered to your traditional retail investors. So I'm curious if you could expand on that and how M1 Finance is filling the gap there. Yeah. So you know, we talk about ourselves as wanting to create 
the digital private bank experience. And if you think of you know a bank, you know, Wells Fargo, JP Morgan, uh, Bank of America, they have typical banking services that they offer to everyone, you know, checking account, savings account, they'll probably have a brokerage arm, but then they'll have a private bank. And the private bank is, hey, if you're wealthy, you'll get exclusive access to more investment options, better rates on everything. And you know, th- it'll also be coupled with white glove service. And so you are paying for a component of that. M1's ethos is if we digitize that experience, we don't have to pay for the white glove service. And so you do give that up, but you don't also don't have to pay 1% of your net worth every year. But we can bring all those features, those functionalities, the service, the rate down to people who have six figures, five figures, as opposed to needing eight, nine, or 10 to deal with uh, the private bank. And so when you look at that, even the, the investment portfolio that we just talked about, you need a very large sum of money before the private bank will give you what's called an SMA, which is a separately managed account. Otherwise, they say, you're not worth our time or energy. You get thrown into portfolio, you know, six out of 10 from a a thing. And you're just, you have no choice in the matter. You can't have your investment perspective. You don't get any, you can't say like, hey, I'm a unique person or, you know, I already have a exposure via my job to this sector. So I want less of it. Like you need very large sums of money to have an SMA. M1, you can have an SMA with a hundred bucks. And so, you know, we brought down that personalized investment portfolio to absolutely anyone. We have a product called M1 Borrow. And if you had a hundred million dollars with Goldman, they would give you a $30 million line of credit and say, go nuts, you know, buy a home, buy a car, buy a yacht, gamble it, like do whatever you want with it. I think they would like suggest you do smarter things with it, but they would give you the option to. And they would give it to you at very low interest rates. And so if you're wealthy, you can borrow at very low interest rates. That's not available to most people with $100,000. And so we have that product where you can borrow against your investment portfolio. You can borrow 40% of your investment portfolio, so a $40,000 line of credit. And right now, it's we target Fed funds plus two. And so the fact that Fed funds is um, a point and a half, we are charging three and a half percent on that. So it's cheaper than a mortgage, cheaper than an auto loan, cheaper than a credit card. It is the lowest cost of borrowing that you can possibly get. And we're just opening it up to anybody who has liquid investment portfolios. And so you can invest for free with an SMA, you can borrow for cheaper, leveraging your portfolio. And so it's really giving you those synergistic effects of holistic financial management that are typically only available to the upper echelon that they carve out and sort of move away from the typical bank customer. I'm glad you bring up the borrow feature. I just find that aspect of the platform really interesting. On the one hand, you have the reckless retail investors that might abuse this feature in that you know, they take out the max amount they can get off of their portfolio. They go and do silly things with it and potentially end up losing the money. Where on the flip side, we all know that the ultra wealthy leverage their assets and they use their wealth to go out and build more wealth, but they do it in a thoughtful way where there's risk management and things like that. I'm curious, maybe just a general example. Say I had $100,000 in the S&P 500 and I wanted to borrow against that. What does that look like for how much I can borrow when I have to put up more collateral and maybe some other terms that might apply? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I'm hitting on a couple of topics that you just hit on. I I do view borrow as a tool and it's a little bit like borrowing, you know, you can have a ax to cut down a tree or you can have a chainsaw to cut down a tree. I would take the chainsaw, (laughs) you know, not not strong enough to have the, the ax, but it opens you up to different possibilities, but when used effectively, man, is it a powerful tool to achieve your objectives. And so we view borrowing in the exact same facet. 
It's a tool. It can be used stupidly and it can be used very judiciously to achieve your financial objectives. And, you know, like people borrow to get an education, they borrow for a home, like people borrow to live the financial life that they want. And this just opens up another possibility. From how we do it, it's a little odd. If you went to Schwab or Fidelity, I don't know, their margin rates are eight, nine percent. And so they're charging a hefty amount. And when you look at sort of the unsecured personal loan market, that might be 10 or 12%. And then a mortgage may be four or 5%. The reason that the mortgage is a lot less expensive is there's something backing it up. There's an asset behind it. So the bank is like, or whoever does the lending is less at risk of losing money because worse comes to worse, they'd have to foreclose, they'd kick you out of the house, but they'd sell the asset and reclaim their, their money. What's actually interesting is borrowing against your portfolio, that is more liquid than a house. You don't have to go through foreclosure. You know what it's worth every second, you know, Monday through Friday. And so a financial institution like M1, that's actually a lot less risky than borrowing against a house. And so the corresponding interest rate should be lower. And so we're taking sort of a first principle approach to it of if you're borrowing against liquid assets that we know what it's worth, we can afford to drive down the rate relative to any other form of borrowing. In terms of the, the example that you asked about, if you had $100,000 in the S&P or a diversified portfolio, we'd let you borrow 40% of that. We can actually legally do higher, but we've capped it to manage risk. You would be charged 3.5% currently. It is a floating interest rate. And so you know the Fed is in the news now for changing interest rates. So we do Fed funds plus 2%. And if you borrowed the entire amount, took it out and you know, did a kitchen remodel, if your portfolio fell such that your equity portion, you know, if you did the borrowed all 40, you'd have $60,000 of equity in the $100,000 portfolio, and that would be 60%. If your equity fell to 25% of your portfolio's value, we would have to issue what's called a maintenance or a margin call. And we'd say, hey, you can either post more, you know, add cash, add additional securities, or sell off your loan. And the, the rough math is your portfolio would have to drop by about 40% before that happens. So that's if you take out you know less than that, you have a lot more room to run. And it, so not without risk. And even, again, it's the chainsaw of tools. And so it can be used hyper-effectively. The nice thing about it is it allows you to always have liquidity and always be invested. So you can take your money. You don't have to have this massive cash slug that you know, you're earning nothing on just to sort of fit like your rainy day fund. You can always throw it into your investments. It's always better to invest early, invest often, have that investment portfolio there and know that you still have liquidity that you could tap into at a very low interest rate. And so it just opens up the flexibility and options that you have with your money that you know is akin to how the rich would manage their cash flow and money such that they could leverage one side of their balance sheet for the other. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with, and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? 
a tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions. Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. Another interesting aspect of your platform that kind of threw me for a loop originally. It's like, okay, what's going on here? It's the set trading schedules. So once you place a trade, it's either being executed in the morning or afternoon session. And once you explained that this is a, an investment platform, it's not for trading. You know, A trader is going to want a trade executed that second. Whereas someone that's investing in the S&P 500 for 30 years, they just want the trade executed at least you know that day, that day or the next day within that trading schedule. So that makes sense to me. Did you execute the strategy to try and lower costs with batching transactions together or what led you to differentiating yourself this way? Yeah. So in part, it was the investing platform, not trading platform. And a little bit of, you know, if you hold something for two years, five years, you're not going to remember if you bought it two years ago on Tuesday or Wednesday or at 10 a.m. or 1 p.m. Like, and a little bit of prices fluctuate a lot. There's only like, you know, Renaissance Technology, the major hedge fund that like knows what something's worth at 10 a.m. versus 2 p.m. I think everybody else is sort of playing the, hey, that's random price movements. It's much more important of what does the underlying asset do over long periods of time. And so, you know, part of it is I think people should pay less attention to what happens minute by minute, hour by hour, and it should be more systematic investing and habitual investing. And then the other part was to reduce costs. And a lot of it was based around fractional shares. So M1 was one of the first brokerage firms to support, enable, like innovated on fractional shares. And the whole thing there is we are removing the idea of share count. And you can think in terms of percentage of your portfolio or dollars into a security or investment. And so, you know, it doesn't matter if something trades at $842 a share and you want to buy $28 of it. We abstract all of that away and you can just deploy dollars and money into it. And it goes into the investments in exact proportion to what you want. And batching was a way that we could aggregate people's orders, go and place it on the exchange because we have to interact with the, the exchanges and whole shares, bring it back into the account and sort of divvy it up after the fact. And it allows us to sort of say, we can give you any dollar amount down to the penny of any security. And so the batching allowed us to do that. And so we trade in the morning and the afternoon and enact anything that people can sort of queue up, hey, I want to deposit, hey, I want to rebalance, hey, I want to change my portfolio, I want to add this security. 
that all gets queued up and then we're, we're going to execute it one of two times per day. Now your platform is built for that long-term investor, but you know, many newer investors can get caught up in, you know, these high cycles of high growth, high flyers that, you know, seem to never quit going up. I'm curious what your thoughts are on how newer investors can keep themselves from getting burned in these types of scenarios. Yeah, I mean, that thing is, you know, you get burned once, you're less likely to get burned again. So there's actually probably like a, a small benefit of, you know, touching the hot stove once. <laughs> but, you know, the biggest thing in investing is zooming out, taking a longer term time price and sort of doing the fundamentals, maintaining a diversified portfolio. So sort of the don't put all your eggs in one basket and systematically investing over long periods of time. Most people don't have a huge slug of money that they're investing once. They have incremental capital that comes with their paycheck every two weeks, every month, whatever it may be. And they want to save off a portion either for retirement, a home, a car, a big purchase, whatever it may be that they're in, or even just hey, I'm saving for the long term. So I have a nest egg so I can have more financial freedom and flexibility. And so for us, it's really about every two weeks habitually saying, I'm going to invest $500 and it's just going to go to work in this diversified portfolio. And the, the way that M1 works is you're setting a percentage allocation. So you might want 5% in that super high growth tech startup. If that gets to 10% of your portfolio, it gets less money as you contribute. And so it's this sort of forcing function. And if it drops down to 2%, as more money comes in, it gets directed towards that slice of your pie and adds more incremental capital. And so it's a forcing function of as things become relatively less expensive, you deploy more money into it. And as things become more expensive, you deploy less money into it. And a little bit of, you know, as things run up in value and get more expensive, you can rebalance, you can bring your risk proportion back into the sort of target allocation that you're looking for. And it really gets into this notion of most people think like, hey, if something has gone up, it should continue to go up. And we're trying to more say that you're buying the same thing. You're buying a share of the security. You're buying ownership. If it is less expensive, it is actually less risky. If it is more expensive, it is riskier. And so if you're buying the exact same thing, you would obviously want to pay less for it. And so this is a you know automated fashion of as things become relatively less expensive, you buy more. As things become relatively more expensive, you buy less of it. Yeah, I really like that. You're automating away your emotions and that when things go down, you're allocating more towards that. When things go up, you're automatically adding less to that investment. Another popular topic is inflation. Not only are things getting more expensive at the grocery store and at the gas stations, but stock portfolios and just the prices of many assets are down as well. Do you have a lot of people reaching out you know, asking about inflation hedges? And if so, what do you tell them? We do. It's the topic to sure. It's, you know, every headline right now is inflation prices. What's going to happen? What's the Fed going to do to respond? And so, you know, it's, it's definitely taken over uh, a hold in sort of the market commentary. I do think, you know, it's been interesting of traditional inflation hedges like gold haven't sort of borne out, at least in the short term. And so I think it's the unfortunate thing in investing is there's no such thing as a sure thing, right? And so it doesn't matter if it worked in the 1970s, it may not work in 2022. You know, they're, they're like the world's changed, people's perspective changed. I do think if you zoom out, assets that produce things have hundreds of years of history of appreciating in value. And, you know, when you're buying stock ownership in a company, Every single person at that company is working to make that company more valuable day in and day out. And so they're, you know, it's not easy to do. It's a complicated, a hard world, but that is the reason to buy productive assets is 
the actual underlying value of that productive assets can increase in value due to the intrinsic worth or the cash flows that they generate or the substance that they build increasing over long periods of time. And so for me, my advice is the best inflation hedge is to buy productive assets. It may not work three months from now. It may not work six months from now, 10 years. I have to be cautious of like any guarantee, but my guess is you're going to be significantly better off. And, and so that is the ethos that we take of, man, is it hard to predict what's going to happen in three months? I can predict with very high degree of confidence that the stock market, productive assets will be worth more in 10 years. And I think it'll be worth significantly more than cash in a savings account or cash tied to an inflation adjusted number, it will outpace inflation over long periods of time because that's sort of the nature of markets and the economy and productive assets and people working hard to sort of generate things that appreciate and value over sort of just cash and what inflation does. You know, I mentioned people reaching out to you about inflation and I'm sure the same thing goes with cryptocurrencies. You know, and you mentioned productive assets. Most cryptocurrencies that I know of are not productive assets. So I'm curious what your view is on this asset class and how it plays into M1 Finance's vision. Yeah. So there are companies that generate things. There are also stores of value. And so cash doesn't produce anything. You still need cash to pay at the grocery store. So, you know, cash is not without its value. It is extremely valuable, but it's extremely valuable day to day, month to month. I would not advocate people hold cash for 20 years. You know, I, I think like inflation, I think is more guaranteed to decrease cash than putting it in productive assets would to, to not match the inflation rate. I think cryptocurrency, it's a huge asset class now, right? It's, uh, there are ones that have utility in different you know, protocols and the like. And then there are ones that are solely for the store of value and they are trying to sort of do the, the digital gold. And so, you know, people buy gold, people have the preference, you know, they can choose whether to, they can choose not to. Gold's going to do what gold's going to do. And, you know, it's going to be a meaningful asset class in the global economy, regardless of how anyone specifically feels about whether people should buy gold or not. For crypto, in, you know, I think it's what, 12, 13 years old, it's gone from a $0 asset class to a $3 trillion asset class back to a $1 trillion asset class. So I think it's volatile. You know, that's a lot of movement in a short amount of time. But a trillion dollar asset class is absolutely nothing to scoff at. You know, and, and so we are launching a crypto product. It's in the exact same vein as our uh, investing product of it is not trading crypto. It is not buy and sell 15 times a day. It is maintaining a uh, invest a portfolio of crypto assets. And so we, you know, announced that we have a beta list signed up uh, in the coming weeks. We'll start, you know, giving it uh, out to people, but it'll be in the exact same mechanism of if you want to own crypto as an asset class, that is a choice that any individual should be able to make. You should deploy your dollars in what you know, what you understand, what you feel confident in, and you should systematically do it over long periods of time. And we are opening up that affordance to all of our, our user base shortly. That's pretty exciting. You're getting into crypto. I'm just thinking about all the areas you're touching as a platform. We're going to be diving into fintech, but you know, I think about what you have. You have your invest feature, you have your borrow feature, you have a you know, checking account, you have credit and debit cards, now crypto, and among other things as well. I'm curious what you're maybe most excited about with what's to come for your platform in the future. 
Yeah. So you mentioned the, the checking account, the debit card, the credit card. We bucket that under M1 spend as our category. And when I started M1, a lot of it was you know, people view their checking account differently than their savings account, differently than their brokerage account. And they might have it with nine different companies and they move in and then they have their loan with another company. And at the end of the day, it's your money, it's your finances, and you need to manage your money, your finances. And there's actually benefit for the customer for bringing it all on one platform of just simplification. You don't have a finance folder on your phone with 15 different apps and you have to move your money and wait for the delays and all that stuff. And then the financial firm can actually do interesting things when everything's on one platform. And we talked about it with that invest borrow dichotomy of if you invest with us, we can let you borrow for cheaper. And so if you use your uh, checking account and credit card and debit card through us, we'll have more information. And so we can better underwrite you for other forms of, of borrowing. And so we can likely give you a lower interest rate on other loans that we do in the future. And so for us, we view ourselves much more as holistic financial management, wealth management, wealth building. You know, In the legal mind, there's a difference between a checking account and a brokerage account. In the customer's mind, it's like, I need to be able to spend my money. I need to be able to invest my money. I need to be able to borrow money. And like, I need to go to a regulated entity to do that because that's the way that we've set things up. And so for us, we're trying to say, hey, it's a platform. You can do all of your money management and we're trying to bucket everything together and really create an ecosystem or platform so that we can offer things that you can't put together with point solutions out there. In terms of like what I'm excited about, we've built a lot of innovative things in each one of those verticals, invest, borrow, spend. We have a lot of automated functionality. And so you can set up rules of, you know, I never want more than this amount of cash. If I do spill it over first pay off my borrow balance. Once that's paid off, go into my IRA. Once that gets maxed out, go to my investment account. And so it really lets you set up a personalized automated plan. I think what I'm excited about is going deeper in each one of those verticals. And so, you know, in invest, going deeper, adding asset classes of crypto, we would love to add asset classes of alternative investments, whether it's private equity, venture capital, real estate, other forms of investments that people may have. Borrow, we have that portfolio line of credit. We would ideally like to offer any form of borrowing that someone can do. And so line up, here's your lowest cost against your liquid assets. Here's your next highest cost against your hard assets. And here's your cost on an unsecured basis and a little bit of dollars a dollar, borrow how you need, and we'll sort of optimize it in the background to give you the lowest cost and most flexible terms. And then spend stuff. There's a lot we can do on, we provide the checking account, the debit card, the, the credit card, but really advanced analytics and functionality on to inform, you know, if you want to save money, where can you pair back? How much should you be saving? Are you making the income relative to your age and education level and job title? And so, you know, like, when you digitize everything, you can provide a lot of analytics and suggestions and things like that. So vast personalization at scale and going deeper in each one of the verticals is what I'm excited about. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, 
High interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. You're touching on the data aspect. And when I think about the fintech industry in general, I think of Square and Cash App and what they have going on there. And I think of many of the things they're doing is something you're doing as well, where you're offering a number of services within your company and then you know, improving the customer experience because they're entrenched in your platform with all these different areas and combining all that data together into one. Maybe you could talk about the fintech industry in general and what you see changing overall within the industry as well. We look up to Square and, and Cash Block, I guess, is, is now the, uh, but what, what they've done is fantastic. And I think they're a great example of 10 years ago, you would have fantastic consumer applications outside of finance. And then the finance apps were felt like they were designed in the 1995. Square and Cash App, it's as good as any consumer application. And so it's sort of saying, you know, there is no reason why these experiences need to be subpar relative to what you can experience outside of finance. And so I think that they've done a fantastic job in that. And then they're similarly doing ecosystem of, you know, hey, you can do a lot of different things on the, the platform. I think on financial services or fintech, it is like the portmanteau of the two words, financial services and technology. And it's really saying too much of finance is still driven by people in suits, you know, going to fancy offices with big mahogany wood chairs and tables and, and things like that. So, and that is very expensive to replicate and scale. And it, when you do that, you can't cost effectively serve people under a certain amount of money. And so you really do like an individual sitting you down at the table, like to educate that individual so that they can act on behalf of the firm to, you know, speak with the people and adapt. Like that is a very expensive proposition. You have a salary associated with that. So you really do have to have a cutoff and you say, we can't do this unless you have a million bucks, 3 million bucks. Like it's just not available to people that have smaller sums of money. And and truthfully, like the people who have the shopping mall advisor who sits you down, like they're not the creme de la creme of people with finances in terms of advising you. And so the benefit to software is you can perfect it once 
And then it's in essence like free to distribute. And so you can say, you know, what does that well-educated person in a suit that makes a lot of money, what do they offer that that person? How can you productize that? And once you productize it, one, it's expensive to do. It's a lot more, more expensive than that one individual, but then you can open it up to hundreds of thousands, millions, tens of millions of people. And it, you know, you're going to have server bills, but it doesn't cost much more than that. And so you can really bring down the cost dramatically, pass those savings on to the customer, not charge as much, as well as open it up to more people. And so I think that's the nature of fintech is you're providing financial services. You're not reinventing money. You know, I guess crypto may be saying that they're reinventing money, but investing is investing, borrowing is borrowing, spending is spending. You're just enabling it in a much better fashion utilizing technology to do it. I do think there are two different veins of how fintech companies operate. One is to do it for trying to say, hey, we want to offer seamless money management to 90% of the US population. I think there's another that says, hey, how do we bring the tools that are available to the ultra wealthy sort of down one like wealth level. And you know, I, I think both of those need to happen for, you know, and it, it really just means every single person is getting better tools, better pricing, more optionality, more functionality, uh, and just improving the overall experience people have with their finances. Another you know, headline that kind of caught my attention was you actually purchased a bank that has been around for 119 years. What led you to making this acquisition yourself? I, through M1 and other vehicles, want to create the next generation financial services. And, and it's sort of you know, the 2020 version of Schwab, that Schwab talked about 1970s, better product, better pricing, compounded into behemoth. We think that we can offer better product, better pricing, and compound into a, a large financial institution as well. Just the way that regulated entities work to offer stocks, ETFs, borrow against your investment portfolio, you have to be a broker dealer and to offer banking products, which is, you know, payments, deposit accounts, loan products, it's bank. There is a way to sort of ride on the the top of other partner banks, but you're always subject to their rules, their regulation, their technology, and it, it becomes a little difficult to move quickly, scale fast and the like. So I purchased this teeny tiny little bank up in northern Minnesota. I, I went and visited in January as you know, negative 30 degrees. And it, it was maintained the operation as it exists up in northern Minnesota. You know, it has a two branches and you know, banks the small community up there were investing behind it, we're you know giving them new logos and new branding and you know uh, more technology. They're the one bank in town with an iPad now to, to fill out your mortgage. And so like doing things there, but a lot of it was to build digital infrastructure to support the underpinnings of banking. That at the end of the day, you're only as good as the, the infrastructure allows for. And most of uh, financial services, you're going to hit some pretty arcane, archaic databases, mainframes and the like, and it just slows everything down. And so a lot of the purchase of the bank was enabled to support M1 launching more banking products. And I did as an individual due to some regulatory reasons, but building all the technology there such that M1 and other fintechs can utilize the infrastructure, utilize the new technology to support banking products and really enhance the M1 experience as well as just enhance the, the tools and uh, options that are available to other companies that want to launch banking related products. I believe M1 has a few hundred employees. You guys have scaled up pretty rapidly. I'm curious, you're based out of the Chicago area and I believe you guys have an office there. How have you adjusted to post-pandemic life of people wanting to work remote, you know, at the same time, wanting to make sure employees are productive and you're hitting your targets. And I guess just how did you approach that uh, post-pandemic life of remote work and having an office as well? Yeah. So pre-pandemic, M1 was 40 people and we 
scaled to about 300. So most of our hiring, most of our onboarding, most of the people that we brought into the firm happened during this pandemic era. And so we have the DNA of a remote culture almost just by the circumstances of the world that we lived in at the time. And so you know, we're Chicago-based. About two-thirds of our employees are still based in Chicago or Chicagoland area. We do hire nationwide now. And so, you know, we have the DNA of a hybrid work environment can support remote employees. And by virtue of that, you get really good at uh, managing remote stuff. So we are better at documenting onboarding. We're better at, you know, doing remote training of the job, better at doing social events over remote stuff. And so, you know, we've had to do that over from 2020 to 2022. And that has really just continued. We still have space for 250 people in Chicago. And so we offer a very flexible hybrid environment of, you know, most teams still do see benefits of getting face-to-face interaction, having social interaction. They just don't need a commute five days a week. They may need it. They can, you know, sort of get that one or two days a week, and then you know, uh, be able to save thirty minutes on you know each side of their workday through the the commute. Better handle family life and the like. And so we have sort of in this post pandemic, if we can say that, I don't know, you know, who knows when it's actually over. Uh, we support a very hybrid culture of being able to try to get the best of of both worlds. And you're, you know, there are pros and cons to everything. We're we're giving up little here and there, but we think it's a right blend of people can still interact in person. They can still get that face-to-face interaction. They can still develop you know, relationships that are probably harder to do over Zoom than you know, face-to-face. But then they also have a lot of flexibility. Of They don't have to waste unnecessary time in their commute. They can still participate in social events over the internet. They don't have to fly somewhere to take a small meeting and deal with jet lag and travel and you know, losing your bags and, and stuff like that. So we try to have sort of the affordance of both and try to take the best aspects of both while minimizing the uh, worst aspects of either. Like I said in the beginning, it's pretty surreal getting to be able to talk to you, you know, as fast as M1 has scaled and the assets you guys have on your platform. And, you know, it's almost a corny question. I think of what sort of struggles or how you came around to being as successful as you are in building M1. I'd imagine that hiring the right people to build out all these, you know, fantastic products on your platform is something that's really key to your success. I'm curious what other maybe tips or big things you've learned along the way that you'd like to share. You know, entrepreneurship is an interesting thing that started the company, what would it be, almost seven years ago now. The best line, and I don't know who said it, but I got co opted, is the highs are high, the lows are low, and they're 10 minutes apart. And there, there are times where you know you think you're taking over the world, you're you're successful, you're patting yourself on the back, and then something goes wrong, and you're like, "Why did I do this? I had a stable job, <laughs> I like could have made more money elsewhere. Like I'm, you know, such a failure. This is going to be really embarrassing." And so, like, I think that's the the nature of the journey. And so, you do have to have a little bit of stomach for wild swings, ambiguity, uncertain on the future, and a little bit of like you're going into a vast unknown, and you have to sort of know that that's happening and do the best of it. And a little bit, you know, we're David versus Goliath. We're trying to say, hey, with a small team and really strong design people, technologists, engineers, we can build something that can take on the, the giants of the Schwab, the Fidelity, because they're too slow and archaic and, you know, dealing with uh, old mainframes and, you know, just can't, can't innovate as fast. I mean, you hit it. The people that you bring on are everything. Like, none of this can happen in 
solo efforts. Uh, M1, like when we were six people, I could keep it all in my head. When we're now 300, it's not a chance in the, the world that you can keep everything that's going on. And so every single person that you bring on is another stamp or like grooving in of the culture that you're going to develop. I was super fortunate for the, the early team, many of which are still with the company. Like they bring on additional great people. Those great people bring on additional great people. And so it really is the spreading network effects of the individuals that you bring on at the company, that the company is nothing more than the individuals at it working on a, a shared problem. And so there's a lot of nuance of how to do certain things and you know make decisions and the like, but it really does come down to people. Like find people that you respect, think highly of, would there's this sort of thing, hire people you would be happy to work for. And I, I do think just maintaining a very high bar on the individuals that join you on the journey, because they're going to go through the ups and downs as well. And so they have to be committed to the mission, the purpose, the value. They're you know all talented individuals that could get jobs elsewhere. And so you really have to find talented people, sort of lock arms and be uh, crusaders together for a, for a common mission. One more question that just came yeah. to mind. I really enjoy listening to one of our other hosts episodes, Preston Pish. He's talking about the macro environment quite a bit. And one of his recent episodes, they mentioned at the beginning, you know, how in the world is someone conducting business in this environment just with the swings we see in call it interest rates, inflation, and all the things happening on that front? You know, in 2021, it might have been super easy for a company to raise money at, you know, if they're taking on a loan, maybe it's super low rate. Whereas this year, you see layoffs at a lot of these tech companies. It's probably a lot more difficult to raise money. How has M1 Finance sort of weathered through this? And maybe you could speak to, you know, what it's been like being a business owner in this, what seems to be a pretty crazy environment. Yeah, it, it, it's been, been, been crazy to say the least. You know, it's, I think the tough thing is like any business that's successful is going to operate over long periods of time. And it's something that, like, within those long periods of time, the business cycle, the hype cycle, you're going to have booms, you're going to have busts, you're going to have things go your way, you're going to have things go against you. And so it is. Like we sort of the tailwinds, headwinds perspective. Last two years, you know, 2020 and 2021, massive tailwinds at our back. You know, it was despite COVID, like high level of interest in retail investing, low interest rates, tech valuations were high, fundraising was interesting. You know, people were coming after fintech company. And so, like, we benefited at the what was happening in the, the background. And I think the last six months, everything turned into a, a pretty significant headwind. I think how you operate in that is you have to be adaptive and dynamic that you know you can't like I am probably too long term oriented of you know are you putting the the building blocks in place are you planting the seeds now that that bear fruit meaningfully down the road but there are like you have to survive and thrive day to day week to week month to month and so you have to be responsive adaptive to the the situation that you're in and you know as time goes on you learn more things you're pointing the the ship in a direction and you know you might learn things now that you didn't know Six months ago, a year from now, and you know you, you're always sort of fine tuning and, and optimizing the machine. But I also do think there is a benefit of zooming out and saying, you know, a company does have to operate through significant cycles. It needs to deliver value in good times and bad. It takes a long time to develop and productize and optimize and scale things of value and consequence. And so a little bit of like. You know, you're reacting day to day, but you're also thinking like, are we planting enough seeds that you know may take three, four, five years to bear fruit? But when they do, the the bounty is full. And so, you know, I think it's constantly being able to have both of those perspectives in play of you know short term with long term optimization. Thank you for that, Brian. 
And thank you for joining me on the show. This is a really fun conversation. Really appreciate it of you hopping on to chat with me. Before we close it out, I want to give you the handoff to where people can connect with you and M1 Finance and whatever else you'd like to share. Yeah, I appreciate you inviting me on the show. It was, it was a lot of fun. We should do it again. The M1, so it's m1.com, letter M number one.com is our website. You can find us on Apple App Store, Google Play Store. Uh, we're on all the social media profiles. M1 is more active on all those profiles than, than me. So you, know, you can follow me on Twitter, but I think I have three tweets. So <laughs> no, no use in sharing that. Awesome. I'll be sure to link all that in the show notes. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review on the podcast app you're on. This will really help us in the search algorithm so others can discover the show as well. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources, as well as our TIP finance tool that Robert and I use to manage our own stock portfolios. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.